welcome to Mystere Creations. Today we're speaking with Brandon Weston about Ozark folk magic. He's written a few books on the subject and is a folk magic practitioner. Please join our discussion. Now on to the show. Welcome to the show, uh, Brandon. Nice to have you here. Thank you for having me. Normally, I ask people to introduce themselves, but we've had you on the show several times, Brandon Weston. Um, and today, we're going to be talking about your your book, uh, Ozark Folk Magic, and possibly a little bit about your second book, which just came out, Ozark Folk Magic Spells. Can you tell us a little bit about what constitutes Ozark Folk Magic? Mm-hmm. So specifically, we're looking at folk magic and folk healing traditions that derive from the um, culture of the the Ozark Mountain Range. Um, So, and it's actually, you know, geologically, it's not a mountain range in the technical terms. So our mountains aren't pushed up from tectonic activity. They're actually, it's a worn down plateau. Um, So river activity over, you know, thousands of thousands and thousands of years have worn down this plateau into a mountain mountainous area. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's pretty unique in that it's, it's a relatively speaking, a small area of land, even though we kind of consider it to be pretty big around here, but compared to Appalachian mountains, things like that, it's relatively small. And I always like to compare it to an Island because if you look at the landscape surrounding the Ozarks, you know, in into Kansas, you have, the Great Plains, you know, over into Oklahoma, flatlands, central Arkansas is the river valley, and it flattens out to the Delta region, you know, like swampland, things like that. So really, the the region sort of raises up out of the landscape as this, this island area. And the island sort of uh, image really applies to the culture as well in that you know, for a really long time since white settlement of the area and around the turn of the 19th century, folk beliefs, folk traditions, um, not just healing and magic, but, you know, food ways, folk music, storytelling has been relatively isolated on this sort of island mm-hmm. due to the the mountainous area, how difficult the terrain was to really um, conquer, I guess, <laughs> Uh, or work with. So the, you know, it was difficult to get out to these areas. The hill folk that settled here were mostly from Appalachia. So Appalachian hill folk families, they would have already known how to live in this landscape. Um, So when they found the Ozarks, then they, they would have settled right in. Um, And so we're still actually considered a part of the greater Appalachian cultural region because of this. We still have very strong ties to Appalachian folk culture. But again, because of this sort of isolation, um, this this the island sort of nature of the Ozarks, a lot of what was brought over by Appalachian families was evolved, was changed, was grown here. And so there, uh, while we still have a sort of cultural heart with Appalachia, you know, we also have a bunch of stuff that has changed since then mm-hmm. um, and has become sort of uniquely Ozarks. But because we have such strong ties to Appalachia, I always 
tell people, you know, that are interested in Ozark folkways, you will no doubt at some point encounter holes in the folk record because the Ozarks haven't really been researched as well as Appalachia and other places have been. So, you know, if you are doing anything with the Ozarks, you can always fill in those holes, fill in those blanks with information from Appalachia. Yeah. So, for instance, I always recommend the Foxfire Guide series, um, which is, you know, like 12, 13 books that were published back in the 70s containing all sorts of folk information from Appalachia. And yeah. I sat down years and years ago, I sat down with my grandpa, who's very Ozarky, and uh, and went through some of the Foxfire books, and he knew exactly what everyone was talking about, all of the stuff in there. So um, we still have this very strong connection to Appalachia. Um, but, uh, you know, we've sort of become our own thing. So, you know, ge- geographically, we are sort of in a weird place. We're situated, uh, you know, sort of in the Midwest, but there's always a joke that the Ozarks aren't quite Midwestern. We're not quite Southern. We're not quite Appalachian. We're just sort of, <laughs> we are, we're Ozark. It's, it's kind of its own thing. Um, the majority of the Ozark Mountain Range uh, sits in Missouri, actually, southern, southwestern uh, Missouri, and then into northwestern Arkansas is a, a pretty big chunk, and that's where I am. Um, and then a little bit goes over into Kansas and a little bit down into, you know, northeastern Oklahoma. You explained about how Oz- Ozark folk magic is its own thing. Can you tell us a little bit about what folk magic is considered in itself, please? So, yeah, it's a, it's kind of a big, complicated area. But in general, you know, when we talk about folk magic traditions, we're talking about, um, you know, practices that would be considered supernatural or working with the other world or some sort of supernatural power, some some power that isn't um sort of outwardly present in everyday life and folk magic is you know traditionally defined as this sort of supernatural magic that is centered around the folk around specifically common folk mm-hmm. and so you see a lot of common trends in folk magic traditions across the US and across the world typically you know a lot of these traditions are based within an oral folk culture so they are passed down by word of mouth rather than written down. Um, you tend to not see a lot of, you know, grimoires and magic books and things like that. Yeah. Folk magic tends to be also, which is, this is one area that people tend to forget about. Folk magic is often tied in with technology, with technological developments. And what I mean by that is, you know, historically folk magic, folk magicians have, utilized um, what they could find at pharmacies, for instance, which is a technology, the development of medicine, bottled medicine, things like that. Um, They've utilized almanacs. Here in the the Ozarks, one of the big things is using the almanac for astrological information. That's a technology. Um, Utilizing spell books like the, you know, the sixth and seventh book of Moses, the um, Albertus Magnus, the long lost friend and powwow. That's a technology. So go, rather than creating this yourself, you are you are purchasing it and then utilizing it as a part of your practice. Folk okay. magic traditions also tend to 
uh, be more influenced from other traditions. And so a lot of times, you know, we say folk magic traditions borrow a lot from other traditions. And it, you know, sometimes that's true, but, you know, in my own research, what more, more often than not, what's the case is that folk magicians just have, tend to have an openness to things that work. And if it works, it works. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, folk magicians might not question the source of the information as long as it works. And so uh, in the Ozarks, this is especially the case because, you know, all, all of our traditions are a big uh, amalgam of old world traditions and then new world variations of old world traditions mixed with indigenous traditions mixed with you know west african traditions things like that yeah. and so you know amongst ozark folk healers and folk magicians the the philosophy has always been if it works it works um so you know there's not a lot of questioning when it comes to stuff like that um but i i would say you know my definition of folk magic in general is you know magical practices that are specifically you know i guess specifically originate from the folk from common folk and that's really to distinguish it from ceremonial magic or what some people might call high magic things like that which tend to develop in more educated erudite academic settings that sort of thing yeah so folk magic uh, is an interesting area <laughs> um it's you know at least from an ozark perspective our folk magic traditions um are constantly evolving constantly changing uh constantly incorporating in other things that we learn um not just from you know physical real world you know practitioners things like that but also from the spirit world um, which can highly uh, influence our practice and help evolve practices, things like that. To clear up some confusion, the word powwow, what does it mean in the folk magic sense? And does it come from indigenous people? That that has long been a debate, I think. And I'm not sure that there's a, a definitive answer because, you know, I mean, powwowing is such a, uh, rare practice this, these days, you know, people are starting to recreate it. Um, I, I always say, you know, in, in workshops and things that the closest North American folk tradition to the Ozark folk tradition would be powwowing. Um, mm -hmm. We just set, share so much of that folk magic tradition, that, that practice. Um, you know, I have my own theories, which sort of align with what the folklorists think that the original powwowing wasn't actually uh, based in any indigenous word or tradition. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is, you know, going back to the 1800s, early, you know, late 1700s, when powwow as a magical practice started popping up, powwow wasn't used amongst indigenous people in the same way. You know, so today we're very familiar with powwows and things like that. And it, even in the indigenous communities, you know, it's very widely used. Mm -hmm. At that time, you know, the earliest cases where we see powwowing as folk magic practice, you know, the indigenous people weren't using the word in the same way. So it is most likely that powwow came was a sort of Americanization of perhaps a German folk word 
that was used and we've kind of just lost what that original word was. Mm -hmm. There's also a theory which I kind of believe that powwow is connected to the word power. And so Mm -hmm. it's just sort of an, an alternative sort of folk phrase uh, referring to power, referring to, you know, that innate gift or magical power within the person. So that kind of makes sense because practitioners were also called powwows. So the practice, the practice was called powwow sometimes. And then the actual practitioners were called powwows. And it's interesting because there's also theories and, you know, this hasn't been verified. I don't know that there is a way to verify it, but there are theories that in the Ozarks, one of our, you know, traditional healer titles was power doctor. Um, and that, that had a very specific, the, the power doctor had a very specific role within the community. They, they used charm, verbal charms, prayers, ritual. They, they fashioned amulets, things like that. They, they were the magicians of the community. Um, and they they went by the name Power Doctor, and there's a theory that th- that is connected to uh, a more English, I guess, anglicized version of powwow. So you know, German communities in you know northern Appalachia and, and Pennsylvania German area, they would have known powwowing. They would have brought that through the, the Appalachian mountain range to the southern Appalachians, and then brought it over to the Ozarks. So you can imagine sort of telephone game as it passes mm-hmm. through you know powwowing or you know you have this german this german folk word that sort of sounds like power that then gets transformed into powwowing that again then just gets transferred into or transformed into the word power um going to power doctor um but i kind of tend to believe that theory there are theories that, you know, powwowing came about because you had folk ma- German folk magicians who uh, observed indigenous ceremonies and, you know, took some of the indigenous ceremonies into their own practice. I tend to not believe that <laughs> just because if that were true, we would see more indigenous ritual influence in powwowing and we don't. Um, the powwowing that sort of originated, you know, in in southern Germany and then came over to Pennsylvania German areas um, is European. So yep. if you observe any powwow rituals, they are all based in sort of European folk magic, uh, a little bit of European sort of ceremonial magic, things like that. The only influence that really would have come in from indigenous people is with plants. So powwow doctors and also power doctors in the Ozarks would have had a lot of their plant knowledge come from interactions with indigenous people. But the likelihood that folk magicians would have in Pennsylvania German country had enough interactions with indigenous people to rename their their practice as powwowing to connect it to the indigenous people is just very unlikely. Um, so I tend to not believe that story so much, but we don't really know. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting because I've even heard 
powwow doctors and, and powwow practitioners try to connect it back to indigenous origins. So there's a lot of stories going around, but some of them sound a little bit more likely than others. Um, mm. The other name, you know, a lot of people that are practicing this now, they just leave out powwow altogether. They don't even try to deal with it. And they go back yeah. to an older German word, Braukerei, um, which is okay. also is the same practice. And so there's Braukerei that refers to the actual practice, and then the practitioner would be called a Brauker. Um, so there's a lot of people that are sort of leaning towards those traditional German words at, and, you know, not even trying to deal with the word powwow, which I respect. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, yeah, I definitely respect that. But yeah, it's it's interesting. And you don't really hear power doctor ever in the Ozarks anymore. It's kind of okay. one of those old traditional terms. Uh, I I like to use it just because I'm trying to revive some of those older terms. But um, so I still use power doctor occasionally as a sort of teaching term. So, you know, uh, to, yeah. to start conversations, things like that. Yeah. Power doctor actually works. Yeah. Because I mean, yeah, it it sort of describes what you're doing. You're you're working with the power, powers, this this gift, yeah. and things like that. And so, you know, the power doctor typically wasn't an herbalist. Um, they would use plants, but they would use plants in what we would say a magical way. Yeah. Um, so, if they were using a plant, it was you know they were using it to cleanse a person. So they would use it with a bath to cleanse a person, things like that. Um, the Yarb Doctor was really the herbalist and the granny women. Um, and Power Doctors, a lot of the Power Doctor stuff has died out because people have traditionally been very interested in the herbalism and not yeah. very interested in the magical practices. Uh, so unfortunately, a lot of the work of the Power Doctor has died out. Is there any uh, books that kind of trace that or other than your own? Well, so the the first mentioning of any of these names came from Vance Randolph. It, so he published in, uh, I think his Ozark, uh, Ozark Magic and Folklore is probably the most famous uh, book that he published. I think it came out in 1947. Uh, and his research actually began in the 20s and 30s. So in the Ozarks, there were, you know, three big folklorists who collected probably about 90% of what is out there. Uh, and Vance Randolph was the most popular because he actually published for a popular audience. So he published with Dover publications. He published with all these big publishing houses and things like that. He also wrote a lot of articles and things. Um, and so he is sort of the first written accounts of um, the power doctor, he's the one that names the power doctor, the Yarb doctor, the Goomer doctor, um, things like that. And so they, these names had probably been around in folk culture, but that his work is really the first place where we see these names mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, and he kind of explains the role of these, these doctors, these healers, but he doesn't actually get into the origin of the names. Uh, Yarb doctor obviously comes from the, the, the old Ozark dialect word for an herb, which is Yarb, yeah. which has some interesting origins. Um, you can trace it back to, I can't remember which county in, in Britain, but 
Um, there is a dialect of British English that used yarb, and that's probably the the closest cousin, I guess, we have to our word yarb. There's also uh, an interesting theory um, amongst some folklorists that trace yarb to the Spanish, um, like yerbera for herb. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of interesting because, you know, Ozarks historically has had Spanish influence. Um, and so that would be an interesting thing to look at. It's most likely, it most likely goes back to British English because a lot of our Ozark dialect words go back to British English. Um, yeah. or, you know, some of them goes back even to Gaelic, like Appalachian English goes back to yeah. Gaelic, uh, in a lot of cases. So, yeah, um, Vance Randolph was really the first to publish about these, these healer names, things like that. And so there is a question. Um, it has always kind of been a question with folklorists and practitioners, how much of the information that folklorists were collecting was actually true. Yeah. Because, you know, what we're trusting is the word of one folklorist um, who, you know, wanted to sell books too. So it is highly possible that these names actually just derived with Vance Randolph and didn't actually derive from within the folk culture. Um, I, I tend to think that is maybe half and half true because terms like granny women have definitely, definitely originated within the folk culture, but um, terms like the power doctor, the goomer doctor, things like that is questionable. Um, Vance Randolph also knew a lot about Braukerai and powwowing and I say that because he includes direct copies of um, verbal charms from the long lost friend in his Ozark magic and folklore. So he claims that his informants recited these verbal charms, but they are direct copies from the long lost friend. So, <laughs> you know, I'm not saying that an informant didn't repeat a verbal charm from the long lost friend, because that's certainly possible. But yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's questionable how much was actually from informants and how much was influenced by, you know, other works that he had encountered. So I, I like using Power Doctor and Yarb Doctor and Goomer Doctor, which is another type of healer. Um, mm-hmm. I like using those terms, but I always preface it with this may not be a part of the traditional True. folk record. Uh, I'm going to go off the cuff a bit here with granny magic. I've heard the term several times. Mm. I know that my grandmother uh, had a book from my great grandmother. Yeah. in in the Ozarks, you know, we have the granny woman and that's a term that sort of people are starting to revive again. Um, Traditionally, the granny woman was a very, very important member of the community in the old Ozarks, there was a taboo against men working on women's issues. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, in a lot of cases, traditional healers who were male could not work on women. And I don't know to the extent that that was actually upheld within the community, but I do know that the position of the granny woman rose up out of that. So the granny woman was able to heal women in the community. Traditionally, you know, the granny woman is often considered just a midwife, 
which that was usually a big role of the granny woman was as a midwife, because again, men couldn't work on women. Um, And so the granny woman was a midwife, but she was so much more than that. In a lot of cases, she was the community herbalist as well. Um, But she also typically knew verbal charms, ritual, um, knew how to fashion amulets, things like that. So whereas you see, you might see different positions of, you know, the Yarb doctor, the power doctor, the Goomer doctor, the granny woman was really all of these things together. And so in a lot of cases, you know, it's not unusual to see um, more women being connected to these folk practices than men. The, you know, traditionally women were the center of the household. And so if anyone was ill or had an issue or was cursed or whatever it might be, they would go see their, the granny in the, in the community or in their family. And in the Ozarks, it's interesting because we have a lot of sort of names that are given to people in the community, honorific names. And granny is one of those. So granny women often were mothers or sometimes grandmothers but in a lot of cases they weren't (laughs) so somebody you know somebody might be called granny because that is a term of respect Um, it's a term of endearment it's like um, men in the community are sometimes called doc uh, even though they aren't a doctor they may be a healer but it's just an honorific term so granny women sometimes were actual grannies, but a lot of times that was just a term of respect that was given to granny women. Um, so it was a very powerful position to have in the community. Unfortunately, because it was so outward facing with the community, the granny women were often the first to be accused of witchcraft in the community. Yeah. And you know there are lots of stories about um, witches being granny women, witches being midwives, things like that. So the granny woman was a very powerful position. And I always, you know, whenever we're talking about traditional healers, granny women is always one of those. I want people to understand just how all encompassing their work and their power was mm-hmm. and how valuable they were to the women the in, specifically yeah. in the community, but the community as a whole. So that's what I mean when I talk about granny granny women specifically. And the role has changed a little bit today just because most people aren't needing midwives anymore. You know, True. midwifery is becoming more popular. So yeah. actually the the role of the granny woman is sort of going back, back to the up. traditional. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, you know, granny women transformed into um what I like to call praying grannies and things like that. So um, it's still an important figure in the community, but their role has changed more from midwifery, physical medicine with women, and more sort of that spiritual sort of uh, practitioner, that spiritual guide within the community itself, which is an interesting thing to look at. What is a traditional way people used to become a healer? So, you know, traditionally, I always make a distinction between the traditionalists and the neo-traditionalists. And that is really because, you know, in in the middle of the 20th century, around the 50s, 60s, and 70s in the Ozarks, we had the Back to the Land movement, which really sort of upended, you know, the, the traditional culture and brought in a lot of 
you know, people from New York City, LA that were, you know, within the new age movement and, you know, were Wiccans and things like that. So it brought a lot of different sort of outside magical and medicinal also uh, traditions to the Ozarks. And so really there is a, a pretty firm distinction between traditionalists who were sort of before that. And there yeah. still are traditionalists around today who are still really connected to that old Ozark culture, which tends to be a little bit more conservative. It tends to be more based in Protestant Christianity and that sort of worldview. And then there are the neo-traditionalists that still have sort of firm roots within the Ozarks, but who have incorporated in other beliefs, other religious systems, other you know, traditional witchcraft systems, things like that. So I'm in the sort of neo-traditionalist area um, because I work with a lot of things that aren't necessarily Ozark. Mm -hmm. So there's a distinction between the neo-traditionalists and the traditionalists as far as passing down the gift. With the traditionalists, there at, was, at one time were a lot of taboos surrounding passing down the gift. So for instance, you could only pass across genders, so man to woman, woman to man, you okay. could only pass down um, older to younger. And in some cases, it was even limited to a certain number. So a person could only pass things down to one person or three people or sometimes more than that. Mm -hmm. um, there were taboos sometimes against passing outside of a family. So not only did you have to pass to, uh, you know, like a man would have to pass to a younger woman, but it would have to be within the family. And so it, it often got very complicated. And really, it derives from the sort of Ozark view about the gift being something that's very tangible. And mm -hmm. so, you know, as it was likened to me, it's, it's this well or this pitcher like a water pitcher inside of you that, you know, when you're born, you can be born with your well filled up with this power, um, mm -hmm. but you can also be past it. So somebody can pour their water into your pitcher, but if they pour their water into your pitcher, they don't have that water for themselves. And so, you know, once you, it, you reach the bottom of your well or the, the, the bottom of your pitcher, you're done. And so traditionally, what you would see is people would wait until they were old and enter a sort of retirement. So they would pass everything down to somebody or to multiple people. And the idea is that those people now have that power. The original holder no longer has it, so they can't use it anymore. Mm -hmm. And so it, that is a very traditional view of the gift and passing it down and things like that. Amongst the neo-traditionalists, you really don't see this very much. Um, part of the reason behind this is, you know, and all of the sort of cultural upheavals of the 20th century, it's becoming increasingly more and more difficult for traditional healers to find people to pass things down to. And so what healers did were they, they sort of started all evolving or uh, changing the story a little bit. So um, in an effort to preserve their knowledge, they started breaking those traditional rules a little bit. Yeah. And so what you see amongst neo-traditionalists today is that, you know, a lot of times the, the, some of the rules 
stay. Uh, one of the ones that I have commonly seen is that you know when somebody passes down specifically verbal charms and prayers and things like that, they never write them down. They always pass them down by word of mouth, um, and you know that has been a tradition that has sort of stayed uh, in the area. But there are also people that are learning from books. They're learning from the internet these days. They're learning from people, you know, in in Zoom calls and yeah. virtually things like that. And so the story has changed, but some of the traditions have sort of remained the same. Um, in my own travels, when I was collecting things in the Ozarks, I collected a lot of power a lot of verbal charms and prayers from people because they were just so desperate to pass them to anybody and so okay. they they didn't necessarily follow the old taboos because they just wanted to give it away they wanted somebody to have it and they didn't have anybody in their family interested nobody that they could pass it to so i inherited a lot of stuff that way um which is really sad you know um that that people really didn't have anybody that was interested. And that's that's one of the reasons I started teaching and writing this stuff is I want to get people interested again. Um, so yeah. that, you know, if if it's a young person and they have somebody in their family that's like this, get them interested again so that they can be a, a person that takes on that power and keep it within their family yeah. and actually things like that. So, you know, yeah, the, so there's a big difference between the, how, how it was passed down amongst the traditionalists versus the neo-traditionalists. A lot of the old taboos have, have gone away. They're also, um, just as an aside, um, there's a, an interesting sort of, um, upturn in the amount of neo-traditionalists who are, um, gaining power or gaining rituals and things like that from spirits. So either from spirits of the land or um, I have a common story that I've heard amongst neo-traditionalists is that they, their ancestors visited them in a dream mm -hmm. or an old healer. This is also pretty common. Um, a healer that used to live in their area visited them in a dream and taught them this stuff, passed down this power and I have a theory that, you know, uh, this is nothing new, that healers in the Ozarks have kind of always worked in this way. It's just today people are more likely to be okay talking about that sort of stuff. In the old days, people would never talk about getting anything from spirits because that was no. witchcraft. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think people still did it a lot. It's just now we're more comfortable being able to talk about it. And so that that's interesting for me to see. It's less of a taboo today yeah, as it exactly. was then, especially in the 1700s when right. with all the witch trials and whatnot. And and, and then uh, in the 70s, 80s, the, the satanic panic oh, yeah. again would have had a little bit of uh, problematic uh, situation with that. Oh yeah, the the Ozarks with the Back to the Land movement, the Satanic Panic hit hard here, um, just because the I don't know how many old timers I've talked to who remember back to being you know younger and they would go out. One story in particular always always stuck with me. Um, he he said you know his his family had a farm 
and he he went out one morning to milk the cows or something and in their field there was just naked hippies just dancing in you know the morning light in the field and he got scared he he ran had to run back to the house and then his dad i guess had to go tell them to leave and everything but that's just a, that's a very good picture of what life was like in the ozarks around that time this yeah. clash between this traditionalist more conservative culture and these sort of you know new age hippie anything goes sort of culture yeah. Yeah. yeah and what's really interesting is as you know as chaotic as that time was the ozark culture was still influenced by that stuff especially when you look at healer culture magical practitioner culture there was a lot of cross influences there uh, and it, yeah, that's that's an area that's really interesting to look at. But it was also a very chaotic time, and there was definitely a lot of, uh, you know, satanic panic, you know, investigations here and all sorts of stuff. Of course, we'll be right back. What advice would you give to someone who lives in a city that doesn't have access to a green space who's interested in folk magic? This is a really interesting area to look at. What I always tell people is, you know, wherever you are, you still have a connection to nature, even if you can't see it you know, our houses are built on dirt. It's mm -hmm. built on the soil. You know, there's groundwater underneath you. Even if you are in the heart of New York City, you are still in nature. You are still on the land. And so I always tell people, you know, to be creative about their practice. And so, you know, finding, even if it's just a few trees, you know, to connect to, but even if you don't have any of that stuff, you can still connect to the air. You can connect to the, the sky. You can connect to those cycles of nature still. You can still sort of plug yourself in. Mm -hmm. Ozark, Ozark worldview with this is a very interesting one. And I think it's very applicable to modern, a modern sort of situation. So in the Ozarks, there's this idea that everything in nature is permeated by this flow, this magical river that flows through all things. And as humans, we are a part of that because we're a part of nature. And so this river of magic flows through our houses because our houses are built of elements. They're built of elements from nature. It flows through everything. It flows through our cell phones because our cell phones are made of minerals, are made of yep. ores from the earth, things like that. And so this flow is through everything. And so the, the, practice of a healer or a magical practitioner is really being able to connect to that flow of magic within themselves. And if you are able to connect to it within yourself, you're able to connect to it within all things. Mm -hmm. One of the best pieces of advice that one of my teachers gave me, she, one day we were talking about um, 
she would often get kind of annoyed with me about how complicated I made things. And so I was always interested in, you know, if she did any rituals or if she had any special tools, things like that. And so one day she kind of stopped me and she said, you know, you should be able to do everything you need to do in a completely empty jail cell. And what she meant by that was that really all that we have as healers and magical practitioners is ourselves, is that connection to that magical flow through nature. And as a practitioner, you know, using tools, using magical timings, auspiciousness, ritual, these are just sort of, you know, icing on the cake, really. The, The real power comes from the individual's connection to their own inspiration and their own imagination. And really, your power is only limited by your imagination and your intention. Yeah. And so I, I always tell my students that like, you know, tools and things like that are good, but keep in mind what you would do without that stuff. So how would you, how would you heal or do whatever you need to do if you didn't have the tools you needed, if you didn't have the plants you needed, if you didn't have hands, if you didn't have feet, if you couldn't see, if you couldn't hear how would you still, would you just give up? <laughs> would you, or would, you know, or would you make it work? And in the Ozarks, you know, people could, in the old days, people couldn't just give up. Uh, I mean, they could die, you know, <laughs> I guess, yeah. but, um, you know, a lot of our practices on the outside seem very simple. So, you know, one of the, one of the community healers that I met who was probably one of the most powerful people I met she, the only work that she did was she prayed over people's medications. And so they would bring her prescriptions, either written down or medicine bottles, things like that. And she would just sit and she would pray over them. And people swore by this, you know, they they swore that their medications were more effective, that things worked out for the better in their life, things like that. And from the outside, that is such a simple practice. She had no ritual. Yeah. Sometimes she would hold her Bible, uh, which is a very Braukarai powwow thing to do. Uh, and, you know, she would just pray. And most of the time she wouldn't even pray aloud. She would just silently just sort of meditate or pray on whatever she was doing. And that is sort of a, a, a quintessential example of that going with the flow. She yeah. was connected to that flow of power through herself. She was connected to that flow of power through nature. And she was able to, by connecting to her own power, her own inspiration, she was able to connect to the people that she was working for because those people are also a part of this river, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think that it's it's a really powerful thing to keep in mind, um, this sort of going with the flow um, as, as, a, as a practice in and of itself. Um, and so, yeah, I always keep that in mind and I always tell my students to just imagine times, you know, what would you do if you didn't have your spell book or if you didn't have, you know, the verbal charms you needed or the, the ritual objects, things like that. And I think it's something that as folk magic practitioners, we, we need to think about because we won't always have the stuff that we need, but, you know, we often need to still work. Most of my practice is internal. And so when when you say that all you need is you and your intention, 
and, and the flow that goes through you. That's basically it. That's all that's truly needed. Now, you could have an FM, you can have a sword, you can have a staff, you can have amulets and, and crystals and, and what else galore and, and still not be able to do magic if you don't have it in you to do. Yeah, it's, it all goes back to that intention. And I think that, you know, in the old days, people would say it all goes back to your gift to, yeah. to that, that inborn gift within you. I like to think of it as uh, inspiration or intention. And, you know, some people are born with this sort of natural ability to imagine things, uh, natural ability to sort of connect to that inspiration and that intention. And with some people, it has to be learned. It has yeah. to be sort of passed to them. Um, but yeah, so I, I, like to, I like to call it inspiration or intention which there, there's a couple images that I, I always like to tell people. So there's the image of the river. So this flow through nature and the easiest way to get down a river is to go with the current is to lay back and go with the flow. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, if you want to go against the current or if you want to go faster where you need to go, you can build a boat or, you know, and yep. building a boat is using ritual, is using specific tools, is using plants, things like that. Magical timings, the cycles of nature. That's all building a boat. But the, you know, the, e you know, the easiest and simplest way is to just follow your own inspiration, follow your own imagination down this flow, this magical flow. Uh, another image that was given to me that I really like sort of describes this intention and what this intention does. I like to also connect it to the old world sort of cunning that people were given. So the cunning folk, they had this cleverness, they had this cunning. And I like to call it inspiration because people don't really understand cunning these days, uh, but yeah. this inspiration or intention within a person. And it's like taking raw wool. So raw wool is this innate magic in the world it's that that the the magic that just flows through all things mm -hmm. and your cunning your intention your inspiration is like taking this raw wool and running it through a spinning wheel so your that your intention is that spinning wheel and what you're doing is by, by connecting to your own intention your own inspiration you are taking that raw material and you are making it into something that can be used yeah. Um, so you are use you're using that spinning wheel to reach your goal essentially, which is the the goal of whatever magic work you might be doing. So I really like that image of the spinning wheel taking this raw product and making something that is useful, that is that you can actually you know a product you can use. I I, I like that imagery. Um, anytime people talk about weaving and magic together it, it it's the perfect thing um i've been looking at at uh, the construct of the universe as a ball of yarn <laughs> and and it's something like that so that's cool can you tell us a little bit about the legend i'm going to say this i'm probably going to say it wrong snoffus snoffus no you said it right yeah, that's, I mean, I, I think that's correct. That's how I've heard it say. Anyway, I'm sure other people probably pronounce it different. Yeah, so the Snophis was a 
sort of magical creature that again was first reported on by Vance Randolph. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there were some local papers around the time that he collected his stories that sort of also talked about the Snoffus. So there's a question whether or not it is actually a part of old Ozark folk culture, just because there aren't any surviving storytellers that still are connected to that old culture. But yeah. according to the the stories that Vance Randolph co- collected, the Snuffus is this sort of magical creature monster, sort of. Um, it, it is described as a large white all white deer with flowering branches for antlers um so instead of antlers it has flowering branches and it is said to be able to fly and most often people have seen it um they they describe skipping through the treetops and it and specifically its role i guess in the ozarks is that it it breathes out the fog and so in the Ozarks, we have a lot of these valley areas that fill with fog and they yeah. get kind of eerie looking. And so the stories always tell of the Snoffus skipping through the treetops, breathing out the fog in the morning uh, into these valley areas. And I've always, the Snoffus is one of my favorite sort of Ozark folk creatures. Um, but there's not really much other than that that is known about it. Uh, I personally have never seen one. Uh, I have collected some stories from people, but they are around the similar sort of um, lines as as these other stories. Uh, so it's it you know it you don't really know. I can connect it back to some old world sources. So in a lot of um, Celtic stories, white deer are usually always you know um, symbols of the other world yeah um so there are stories i think i can't remember is it uh uh, marie de france had a story i think it was it might have been lanval i can't remember but one of her stories and she was heavily influenced by breton celtic breton culture in in france uh but one of her i think it was one of her stories features a hunter who encounters an all-white deer and they're always seen as these sort of portents or omens of the other world and they're always weird. So the white deer in European culture is sometimes a doe, but the doe has antlers. Yeah. And so that is a sort of symbol symbolism of the sort of weirdness of the other world. And the white, the all white is always yeah. a symbol of that sort of weirdness. And so I, I have a theory that the Snoffus is sort of based in that Celtic mm-hmm. culture. Um, and then it's just sort of an evolution retelling. But I, I have always loved the Snoffus, especially the flowering branches for antlers. That has always That's been beautiful. interesting to me. Yeah. Uh, um, well, I have a story of my own for you about that same sort of creature. When I was first learning magic, I did an exercise where you call upon your spirit animal. And you you look in in the mirror and you call to it, and whatever image first comes to you is what your spirit animal is. Mine was a pure white stag, but the antlers were kind of elk like and and branched out 
and had stuff hanging from it. So there Very you go. Interesting. That's, yeah. That's like it's that. yeah. interesting how 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 we're talking about this. That's an a story I would have never thought to bring up and I have never heard of Snoffice before. That's that's beautiful. I I, I yeah. really like it. It's it's one of these creatures that sort of always I always have an issue with magical creatures being just relegated to monsters and, or cryptids. Yeah. And the Snoffice isn't so much a cryptid as it, in my opinion, is it's a, an entity of the other world. Uh, yeah. You know, in the old days, it would have been, you know, ancient, ancient days, it would have been a deity. It would have been a god, probably. Yeah. Um, and so for me, you know, I always... I always like to give them a little bit more respect than just cryptid, but everybody's into cryptids these days. And so mm. I've heard the Snoffice being referred to as a cryptid. And I always have to say, well, it's no. more of like a spiritual entity, really. <laughs> like, yes. uh, let's give it a little bit more respect. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I think the Snoffice is probably one of my favorite ones. Vance Randolph collected a lot of different stories about monsters and, uh, and cryptids in the Ozarks. Um, there are a lot of really funny ones that like there's the side hill hoofer, uh, which is a sort of cross between a sheep and an armadillo. And it, it is it's said to, so the its legs on one side of its body are longer than the other because it specifically, it runs around mountains and so okay. it um, to to because it runs around mountains, it has legs that are shorter on one side because of the angle. Angle, uh, yeah. And so it's called the side hill hoofer. And the way that you can catch a side hill hoofer is you can if you can push it over it, it because its legs are different sizes, it can't stand back it up. Can't, can't. And so that's a, that's kind of a funny one. There's also yeah. um, there's a giant vulture called the gastacutus um that is supposed supposedly only flies in circles because one of its wings is bigger than the other um things like that so there there are a lot of really interesting ones um that the the ones that i really like looking at and you know we've talked about it before are the the fey beings which yeah. i would i would call the snoffice a fey being a really. fey yes that's definitely in that vein of things uh i've also looked at the black stag, which is it's its polar opposite, but not really. Like the two, the the black stag is mystery, and the other, uh, sometimes it, they consider it a portent of death, but mm. it's not an evil death. It's more he 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 brings you to the other side, yeah. or she. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, we have um, also the the boogers, yep. which um, are all black animals, and there can be different types. So there can mm-hmm. be booger dogs, booger cats, booger rabbits, booger elk, you know, things like that. But they are described as being these all black animals, and the way you can tell them from other animals is their eyes will be black as well. And the boogers really have a sort of, uh, they're more of part of the like horror stories of the Ozarks, the scary stories um, that are usually told at Halloween. Because the boogers, 
the word booger is connected to like bogey, like boogeyman and bogert and all of these other sort of old world variations. And so the booger is really sort of a demonic character. They're usually, you know, whatever they, whatever animal they appear as, they are very dangerous and will usually kill you and things like that. And sometimes, you know, it's said that the boogers are witches in disguise. Witches can turn into boogers. Uh, But then a lot of times they're their own sort of almost fey being um, shapeshifter sort of type of creature. And I have seen at least one booger that I know of, and it was a very unnerving experience. Um, I was driving at night on this old dirt road, rural road, which is always where you see all of this stuff, of course. Uh, And I was, I was driving along and I saw something and I'm always cautious about deer because I've gotten hit by a deer before uh, in my car. And so I saw something on the side and the dirt road was sort of just lined by these fields with barbed wire fences. And I saw something. So I slowed down because I thought it was a deer that was going to jump the barbed wire fence and come over. Mm -hmm. And there was something very big on one side of the barbed wire fence. And it didn't take much for them to jump over it. And when they jumped over and came into my, the lights from my car, it was the biggest black dog that looked like a wolf biggest mm. it, it was the biggest animal i like of that type that i've ever seen and it just came out it looked at me and then it went across and jumped over the other fence and went about its business mm. I guess. <laughs> and so i was i was thoroughly creeped out at that, that point <laughs> that would do it I was just glad I I was glad I didn't hit it because I can only imagine what sort of bad luck that would have been. But I was also glad that it didn't pay me any attention for whatever reason and just went about its business. So, but I am uh, fairly convinced that that was a booger. Yeah. Yeah. I I would, I would assume that to be, um, I've only seen footage of one creature like that. And I'm not sure that it was real, but it didn't look fake at all. And it, there was a, a golden retriever that went after it. And this thing dwarfed the golden retriever. It like it was three to five times bigger than it. So if there's film of that and i think it's in virginia yeah so it it's interesting that 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 you saw that i i i find that it's cool and very scary yeah <laughs> if someone is uncomfortable using animal parts would an effigy work sure yeah um i mean animal parts have kind of been a part of traditional Ozark folk magic. Um, These days, you know, I actually don't recommend using a lot of animal parts unless they are ethically sourced. Mm -hmm. Um, And I always warn people with feathers and things like that, because I mean, it's illegal to sell them. And in some states, it's illegal to own feathers for migratory birds, songbirds, things like that. Um, So yeah, you know, because every a lot of what I do is so intention based is so based in like imagination and things like that. I always tell people that, you know, 
if you just use your imagination, you can change the language of your ritual in any way that you want. So if your ritual involves uh, a certain bone or something like that, just sort I mean, yeah, you can make an effigy of it. That would be fine. You can also just sort of change the language of it. You know, okay. a big thing in the Ozarks is using language to invoke certain symbols. And so, you know, by just reciting a verbal charm, the things that are mentioned in the verbal charm sort of magically appear as a part of the work, as a part of the spell. So, for instance, there's some verbal charms that um, specifically for protection where you might use claws or teeth. Uh, you might invoke a spectral or a spiritual dog that doesn't actually appear there, but it magically appears in the space yeah. to bite at your enemies or to bite at sickness, things like that. And yeah. at some point, yeah, sure, in the past, pro people probably had claws or teeth that they would use as a part of the ritual. But, you know, your <laughs> your language can be fueled by this inspiration by this magical intention as well and yes. so if you want it to be there then just put your intention into it put that focus put that power into it and so if you're using an effigy or even if you're just using your words it will appear as a part of the work that's the same thing for um plants as well I'm a big plant person, but, you know, a lot of times people don't have access to the same herbs and things like that. And so I'm not one of those people that is very strict about recipes. Like, no, this ritual has to use mugwort and whatever. Um, I, again, I'm, a, I'm all about intention. And, you know, the, who's to say that in a ritual, if you don't have mugwort, well, I mean, use your magic, use your imagination and grow a spiritual mugwort plant in front of you to use. Yeah. You know, so it, it really is, you know, your power is really limited to your creativity, to your imagination. And there's a lot in the Ozarks. Again, our magic has been traditionally pretty simple and there's a lot of old rituals and verbal charms and things like that where you don't actually have any physical things but things are invoked so yeah. the tree of life is invoked and the tree of life has every medicinal leaf on it that you ever would need and so yeah. in some verbal charms a person might invoke the tree of life then cr climb up the tree of life and pick plants for their client and these plants don't exist in, in physicality but they are there in spirit yeah. so i i always tell people you know if you don't have it, you've got yourself, you've got your spirit. And that's, True. that's all, that's all that you really need. Some common beliefs that if you, if you use someone else's grimoire, you'll be cursed or bad things will happen. And do, do you think that's a myth or do you think it has some semblance of truth? I think I don't necessarily side with that there's also um people sometimes bring up there's an old belief that you're not supposed to buy your own tarot decks you're always supposed to be gifted them that sort of thing and again because i i work so much with like personal power personal intention i think that if your intention is correct then i think you'll be fine the thing about spell books and stuff like that is a lot of times, you know, people aren't just writing down their, their ideas and spells. They are imprinting their energetic patterns on these books as well. 
And so I think you should go into it with a little bit of caution. And I, I think that not just, you know, modern grimoires and things like that, but ancient grimoires as well. I mean, these grimoires were written by people as well. Yeah. Um, and I think that intention and that sort of those sort of energetic signatures can be imprinted on these books. Uh, same thing with ritual objects and stuff like that. So that's not to say that you can't get anything out of them, you can't use them, but you might pick up something from that other person, especially if you're particularly sensitive. And so if the person that wrote this spell book was a particularly angry person, you might pick up anger from that and incorporate it as a part of your work and stuff like that. So I would say, you know, approach it with some caution, Um, you know, Maybe if, you know, if you have a friend and you're wanting to use their spell book or their grimoire, maybe instead of using the physical book, maybe have them recite some of their stuff and you write it down. Yeah. And that you're, you, you are adding your intention to it, your imprint rather than using that other. So that's a typically in the Ozarks, the tradition has been passing down stuff like that orally um, or, you know, I don't always pass down stuff word of mouth sometimes, but, you know, I do keep with some of the old traditions where if I'm passing down a verbal charm or something like that, I might write it down for the person, but then I will tell them to memorize it um, and then to destroy the paper, to burn the paper, things like that. Or, to keep it secret and hidden. Um, I think, you know, one of the things you might risk with using somebody else's grimoire, things like that is, you know, the power might not work for you in the same way, which is kind of a Ozark way of thinking about it. Yeah. In the past, I've picked up books from flea markets and things like that. And they're, there's always an energy component to it. Um, and in a lot of cases, the energy drew me to the book. Mm-hmm. And so I picked it up and it felt right. So I didn't have to do anything with it. But there's been other instances where it's a book that I needed because it's something that I've been looking for. But the energy on the book wasn't great. Right. So I had to, when I bought it, I had to, first of all, put it in a bag, seal it up, take it home, cleanse myself, and then cleanse it. Yeah. Because it just felt icky. Yeah. And it, in this case, it was an old Bible uh, that uh, it was a learning Bible for, for uh, seminary. And it just, it had a lot of bad energy to it. And, and so when when we got at home, I, I had to have a bath and, and then, and then uh, take it. And I, I just sprinkled salt over it and did a simple cleansing to get rid of the energy. And then I burnt some sage o- mm-hmm. over it and, and let it sit out in the sun for a bit. And I, I kind of left it for a week that way because it was just when when you get that kind of creepy crawly feeling, 
Oh yeah. It's just not fun. Yeah. I, I, I really like going to thrift stores and flea markets and, and stuff like that, but I'm, I'm always sort of sensitive to those energies anyway. And so if I do bring something home before it comes in my house, I always do a cleanse in the garage or something mm-hmm. like that, like someplace that's not in my house. Because, I mean, all physical objects sort of can take on that stuff. Yep. And, you know, sometimes it just sort of naturally dissipates on its own and it's fine. But other times, you know, heavy energies and stuff can really stick to objects um, and yeah, I, I always, <laughs> you know, I always tell people, especially if you're inheriting any ritual objects from somebody, um, if, you know, your friend boxes up a bunch of stuff because they got some new ritual objects, always, always, always cleanse it first. Because even if you trust your friends, even if you trust the person and they're a good person and everything, it still holds their energetic patterns um, and it can affect the work that you're doing. So always, yeah. always cleanse that stuff. Even stuff that you wouldn't really think, like, you know, most people probably wouldn't think that you would have to cleanse a Bible, um, but you do. You <laughs> so do. You do, because, you know, the energy doesn't distinguish those things. No. Um, it, it will stick to whatever it uh, sticks to. Yeah. I, at a young age, I learned what electricity does to a house. Yeah. Because my mom and I had a, a particularly good argument i'm saying an argument we were talking loudly to each other but it was an a peaceful argument (laughs) and then that night we were sitting in the house it was completely silent in the house and we were just sitting there playing a game of of uh i think it was 45s and we heard ourselves talking and we looked at each other and said, do you hear this? And it was us hearing that same conversation that we had had. It had been recorded by the power lines because we had a bunch of big, the big uh, tree type power oh, yeah. line yeah. things all around us. And it would just record whatever you said or did in yep. in the house and replay it back at night. Yeah. And that's just electricity doing that not any type of energy other than right that yeah and if that'll do that your intentions um if you're arguing with each other that's all going to go into the substrate of the house the absolutely any items that are in it and with that bible in particular it was the school that was the master of that school was very abusive to the students. And that's what I was getting from the book. And the student had hatred of him. Yeah. And so it imprinted right on that book. It imprinted on it. And, and it was just, no, I don't think I want that energy in here. Yeah. 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 You don't want to bring that stuff in. Yeah. No. Along similar lines, I'm I, I'm a bel- firm believer in one of the you know things that I've gotten from Ozark people, uh, you know that of cooking with love 
too. Yeah. You know, you can, you can cook with love, but you can also cook with hate too. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, the, you can, you can imprint a lot of hatred on, on food, um, depending upon your mood and things like that, which, you know, maybe sometimes you want to do that. Maybe you're giving this food to somebody you don't really like and you want to <laughs> imprint some hate <laughs> on them or something. But yeah, I, that's one of those things that, you know, intention is very powerful and, and, it and is. you know, just people, people need to keep that in mind that you know um your intention your energy uh, energetic patterns things like that can imprint upon the stuff around you yeah yeah very much so you mentioned the left hand path versus the right hand path is there really such a thing so I like using the left hand, right hand distinction, because I think in a lot of folk magic traditions, especially like more ceremonial magic traditions to the left yeah. hand, right hand are distinctions that are really firmly made. Personally, I believe that at least from an Ozark context, people have been working with both hands uh, for, you know, a very long time since ancient yeah. days, you know, they may, they outwardly, they may work with the right hand more, but they're still doing left hand stuff too. And I included those sort of left hand, right hand distinction in the book to really sort of bring to the forefront, this idea of neutrality, yeah. this idea of working with both hands and really how common practices can have both left-handed and right-handed elements to it. And so in an effort to sort of bring people more towards this idea of gray magic or, excuse me, neutral magic, that sort of thing, and the idea that the left-hand, right-hand distinctions are not necessarily, you know... Um, not necessarily based in the reality of what practitioners were practicing. Um, they were often labels placed upon the practitioners from the outside. Okay. Um, and this is from, of course, an Ozark folk magic perspective, because I do know that there are traditions that have very firm separations between left-handed and right-handed stuff. Um, and to the point where, you know, there's actually paths actual like you know pursuits and paths that are oriented towards either left-handed or right-handed work um from an ozark context i always encourage my students and, and and people to look at it as um somewhere in the middle you know you know and because this work is so connected to this idea of the cycles of nature the flow of magic through nature uh, really the the healer magical practitioner is an extension of nature and as an extension of nature you know you work neutral you work in a neutral way yeah. because nature is neutral uh, nature is neither good nor evil we can't put those put those it's neither you know left-handed nor right-handed we can't put those labels upon nature yeah and so that's really you know what i always try to tell people and, and i certainly teach my students is the idea of working creatively and working, you know, somewhere in, in the middle of this left-handed, right-handed stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm a lefty. I was, I was born that way. But when I was younger, um, I was in a martial arts competition and a guy broke my thumb. So I, I couldn't use my left hand for, for about eight weeks. And I had to learn to write with my right hand. And going back to the seminary thing, 
I, I went, when I went to primary school, I was going to an old uh, uh, Christian school that was being converted to uh, public school. And so the nuns, when I started trying to write with my left hand, they would wrap my hand with a ruler every time and say, no, use your right. And so it, that experience taught me to be ambidextrous. Yeah. I can write with both hands. Um, but when I'm throwing, my right arm does not throw very well at all. I, I get more power out of my left arm. But I can do that. Um, and when it comes to magic, I look at everything as spirit. Mm-hmm. So, and spirit is neither male, female, right, left, whatever you want to call it. It's pure, purely what it is. It's yes. not anything other than that. Yeah. And so it, it's kind of cool that uh, the right hand, left hand, <laughs> balance yourself, work, work in the middle. Yeah. And, and, and really, I mean, working in the middle you know, I always, I I tell people, you know, if you're not comfortable doing some aspect of the magic, obviously, you know, you don't have to do it. Um, And I think working, for me, working in a neutral way doesn't mean that today I heal, but tomorrow I just, you know, I try to kill a person with magic or anything like that. For me, those are extremes, and I yeah. try to avoid extremes, which is really what working in that neutral, that gray area is, yeah. is about avoiding extremes. And so on the other end of the spectrum, I would consider uh, like love magic that goes against a person's will to be yeah. an extreme. That's that an extreme. <laughs> so, you know, you have these extremes, uh, the extreme left-handed, the extreme right-handed, and so uh, that's, I always encourage people to bring it in, you know, bring it into more of this middle area where you're avoiding those extremes. And so for me, working in that gray magic area, that neutral magic means that, you know, if I am healing a person and they, they believe that they have been sent a curse from some place, I will do some retribution work, which means taking and healing that curse, but also returning it to the sender. Um, so, and that, that is a sort of has traditionally been considered more left-handed, but I consider that more neutral actually. Um, you aren't, you know, you aren't overtly hurting somebody or cursing somebody. You're just returning whatever was sent back to them so that, you know, they get some karmic retribution from it. (laughs) That sort of thing. Um, so that's where I sort of find myself uh, in, in my own personal work. And that's kind of what I encourage people to look at is how can you bring your practice away from any sort of extreme? So yeah. either working in the extreme anger, the extreme wrathful area, or the other side, which is the sort of extreme, um, what you might consider to be healing, but is actually just manipulating somebody's will, that sort of thing. Okay. I, I try to stay away from from that sort of thing myself, like uh, curses, people that, that do that, they're only hurting themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and they're not taking into account that that's what they're doing. And by sending it back to them, it basically says, here you go, the, you did this. Mm-hmm. And kind of 
it'll it'll write them if if they if they don't uh, if they don't lose it for a bit for uh, trying to figure out what happened. Right. Yeah, and I always put the intention behind something like that that you know what I am sending back may this person learn from this experience, um, may they yeah. grow from this experience. Yeah. Um, and I think that is the true purpose of the sort of retribution work is that they are they are actually going to be experiencing the effects that they wanted somebody else to experience. And as a part of that, they hopefully are going to learn, learn from, from this that. experience. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've seen that happen quite often in, yeah. in, in some uh, some circles. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen it, uh, you know, praying grannies here in the Ozarks, you know, they always have the one of the key feature of this sort of type of person in the community is they always have a Bible verse for everything. And that includes retribution and cursing as well. Um, okay. You know, I've, as, <laughs> I've had more than one person tell me that, you know, the best, you know, spell book is the Bible, really, because it contains yeah. both the you know it's that true sort of middle you know god gives but god takes away as well yeah. Yeah. so i've met several praying grannies that had um they didn't call them curses but they called them verses for retribution and things like that because you know there are people in the community that you know will gossip and slander and all of this and so the yeah. intention is not to hurt them anyway it's a, it's really to learn have help them learn from their actions Mm-hmm. Um, by really experiencing the thing that they wanted somebody else to experience. That's the that's the sort of key area yeah. of the retribution work. Yeah, I haven't been on the receiving end of a curse before, but some people have tried to convince me that I have been. And I mean, that, and that's that's the whole like. I mean, that's why curses really work. Is there? They, it's like a virus. It's insidious. You know, yeah. the the more that you you fuel the curse, the more the effects of the curse are are, are going to have upon you. That's why yeah. I always tell people that you know all of this stuff is energy. All of this yeah. stuff can be used. So if you feel like you've been cursed, rather than suffering from the curse or trying to get rid of the curse, why don't you grab hold of the curse you and use the energy from it to fuel yourself into a better place? And yeah. that's that's a big part of the the working in that sort of middle area. Yeah, is is you not? I'm a big proponent of not letting any sort of thing that happens in your life pass you by without learning from it or being able to harness that energy to put you in a better place. Yeah. If you're not learning, you're you're not living. Right. Well, that's all the questions I have for you today. <laughs> that was a good session. <laughs> it's great. Welcome to Mysterious Creations. Today we're speaking with Brandon Weston about Ozark folk magic. He's written a few books on the subject and is a folk magic practitioner. Please join our discussion. Now on to the show. Mm-hmm.